please be seated. And thank you once again. If you get tired standing during extended worship, feel free to sit down. And uh, glad to have you do that. We live in a culture today that increasingly blurs the lines between singleness and marriage. Singleness and marriage. In years past, there were basically two life situations. People who were single and people who were married. Singles were either never married, they were divorced or widowed. Marrieds were marrieds, remarrieds, or remarried again. Today, it is quite common to have live-in boyfriends, cohabiting partners, or roommate lovers. Many people live together, have children together, buy homes together, yet remain single, never bothering to ever get married. A recent phenomenon is older retired persons, widowed or divorced, living together as man and woman. You add in same-sex relationships and there's a lot of confusion out there. In this culture that blends the lines between singleness and marriage, there's also a lot of confusion about sex. Who can do it? What gives a couple the right of intimacy? Is sex okay if you're single? In the 70s, boomers said you can have sex if you love each other and have gone on at least three dates. Today, love is optional and the first date is just fine. Marriage is, is kind of that distant option, that old-fashioned thing that your grandparents did. And if a couple does get married, how are they to handle intimacy? Does God give any guidelines? Is it okay to be single? Is it okay to be married? Last Sunday, we looked at do a body good in 1 Corinthians 6. It was the, we talked about the misuse of our physical body. We talked about the preoccupation our culture has with the physical and the practice of the sexual. We saw in 1 Corinthians that, that our bodies belong to Jesus. We are bought with a high price. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we are to glorify God in our body. We talked about the proper use of our physical bodies and the fact that God created sex good and Satan has perverted it. Today, as we move into chapter 7, we find the Apostle Paul answering some questions posed to him by the people in the local church at Corinth. Remember, the Corinthians lived in a culture and a city just as pagan and immoral as our communities today. Physical gratification of all appetites was the norm, and it was encouraged, especially sexual appetites. Today, we're going to look at what the Word of God says about singleness or celibacy, and Paul will then answer some of their questions about marriage and sex. Now, when I, when I go through a, a passage of Scripture or a book of the Bible, I, there are certain passages that are more comfortable to preach on than others. And uh, sometimes I th wish I was doing topical, but you know what? If it's in there, we're going to talk about it. So we get to 1 Corinthians 7, and I want us to talk about it because all, ins all Scripture is given for, in for inspiration and is profitable for doctrine, teaching, reproof, and correction and righteousness. So we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 7. Seven. Nothing controversial here at all, right? We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 7, and uh, I'll be referring uh, to my NIV at times, but what I did is, because it's a little bit easier to understand the passages, I've, I've included on your notes, um, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 9, uh, from the New Living Translation, NLT, 
Um, if you want to follow on the Bible in the rack in front of you, it's page 927. So in the NLT, this is how it reads. You can follow along in your insert. Now about the questions you asked in your letter, yes, it is good to live a celibate life. But because there is so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. The husband should not deprive his wife of sexual intimacy, which is her right as a married woman, nor should the wife deprive her husband. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. So do not deprive each other of sexual relations. The only exception to this rule would be the agreement of both husband and wife to refrain from intimacy for a limited time so they can give themselves more completely to prayer. Afterward, they should come together again so Satan wouldn't be able to tempt them because of their lack of self-control. This is only my suggestion. It's not meant to be an absolute rule. I wish everyone could get along without marrying just as I do, but we are not all the same. God gives some the gift of marriage, and to others he gives the gift of singleness. Now to those who aren't married and to widows, it's better to stand married just as I am, but if they can't control themselves, they should go ahead and marry. It's better to marry than to burn with lust. Couple questions. If Paul is advocating singleness, is marriage an inferior lifestyle? Are young people and single adults encouraged to choose singleness over marriage? Is marriage good or bad? And is sex within marriage to be abstained from? Is sex good? These are things, to, things that we are going to address. Now, th some things to keep in mind. First of all, this is not an exhaustive treatise on singleness and marriage and sex. Okay? Paul is answering specific questions. You read that in verse 1. He's answering specific questions that they had, probably questions we would have today. Number two, this was written against the background of Hellenistic dualism that separated the body and the spirit. It was Gnosticism, which we talked about last, last week. Uh, that the body was either to be fully gratified or was to be fully denied or punished. There was the, this dualism. And of course, Jesus redeemed the whole person, body and spirit, not to be divided up. And number three, what was the specific context? Understanding what's the context here. Was this normative or timelessly applied to all Christians for all times? Or was it corrective, intended to address a particular issue in a specific context without universal application? Those are questions we always ask when we see a particular passage of Scripture. The Corinthians, as you see, had some very twisted views on marriage and sex. Chapter 6 dealt with the problem of immorality and talked about the fact that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It matters what we do with our physical beings. It matters. Today, singleness, marriage, and sex. Let's start with number one, singleness, singleness. Verse 1 in the NLT says, yes, it is good to live a celibate life. This is not saying that sex is wrong. The NASV says it's good for a man not to touch a woman. And the, the, the verb to touch is a biblical euphemism for sexual intimacy. To touch a woman can legitimately refer to marriage. That's Manfred Brauch in Hard Sayings of Paul. NIV says it is good for a man not to marry. What is he saying? Letter A, singleness is good. Singleness is good. Now, for a long period in our history, if a guy was single past age 25, you were considered odd. I mean, I remember when I hit 23 and I was still single, and every well-meaning relative and my mother were trying to find me a wife. I was perfectly content to remain single until, at age 27, 
I met Judy. At that point, I lost any desire for singleness. Some of you can say, amen. Okay, good. Paul says, singleness is good. Paul was single. When you think about it, Paul was single. Now, some evidence suggests he may have once been married. He was now widowed or divorced. Or Paul's wife may have left him when he went to follow Jesus completely. We don't know. But Paul was single, and he talks about it. And the very obvious fact often looked in our, overlooked in our marriage-conscious culture is that Jesus was single. Jesus was single. Yeah, but he was God, I know. But he was still single. Singleness is good. Singleness is good. And if you are single, Paul affirms your singleness and says, stay the way you are. He says it's great. And personally, I believe unless one is content as a single adult, one will never be content once married. Because we must bring wholeness, not deficit, into a marriage. So singleness is good. Letter B, singleness is a gift. Singleness is a gift. In verse 7 in the NLT says, I wish everyone, Paul writes, could get along without marrying, just as I do, but we are not all the same. God gives some the gift of marriage, and to others he gives the gift of singleness. Morris writes, Paul had a number of special gifts, or charismata, one of which enabled him to remain unmarried. And celibacy, or singleness, is a special divine gift. We must recognize that as such. If someone has this gift, it doesn't mean they're weird or abnormal. They have the gift of celibacy or singleness. I've had people ask me from time to time, how do I know if I have the gift of singleness? And most desire to get married, so they say that's one gift I don't want. I don't want that gift, okay? Well, my answer is if you have a desire to get married and share your life with another, chances are you don't have the gift of celibacy because God is calling you into relationship. The strong desire for celibacy just pops up once in a while after we just broke up a, a, a relationship and say, never again. But that's not the norm. Not everyone has the gift of singleness, but singleness has some advantages. Has some advantages. It did for Paul and it has for others. Letter C, singleness provides opportunity for undivided devotion to God. Singleness provides opportunity for undivided devotion to God. There's nothing wrong with a good, healthy, romantic relationships, but many times it can take first place in our lives and push God down to number two on the charts. It's a healthy tension to learn that because we will always have that tension. Who's first, another person or God? It's good to learn that in, in that relationship. Now, because Paul was single, he could travel, evangelize, plant churches in a way he never could have had he been married. He had a unique life, and God gave him the gift of celibacy so he could do that undeterred. Now, we get to 1 Corinthians 7, and this is in NLT, 32 to 35. He gives a little bit more expansion to this. Verse 32, he says, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. He's pointing out the pros and cons of, of singleness, particularly singleness, which is what he was. I know many men and women in ministry who 
have undivided devotion to God, undistracted, because they are single. Single. Now, singleness can be a lifestyle given to total selfishness, self-absorbed and self-centered, or it can be a lifestyle of service and selfless giving, undivided. Of course, Paul believed the time was short, so he said, I've got a lot to do. I don't have time for marriage. His commitment to God. We may or may not have the gift of singleness in the long term, but all of us need to give certain periods of our life to total undistracted service and devotion to God. When we were pastoring in Tacoma, Washington, um, we had a sharp young college graduate named Phyllis. She was single and she was on staff with Youth for Christ, full-time ministry, heavily involved in the church ministry. And at that time, our church was small, and, and the five or six young adults that had been in the church had all graduated, married, or moved away. And there was literally nobody left in our church at, in her age-life situation. Well, Phyllis made an appointment one day, came in to talk to me. She was contemplating to go, going to one of the local mega churches that, that had a happening singles group, okay? That was the thing, you know, singles group. Now, singles groups are great. I, I worked with single adults in two different mega churches. Uh, it's a great ministry, a needed ministry, and, and it's, a, it's a wonderful place. And, and so, but my advice to Phyllis was this. She was looking for, obviously, she didn't feel like she had the gift of celibacy. My advice to Phyllis was this. God has placed you here as part of this fellowship. I really believe if you continue in ministry, devote yourself to God, first of all. Take this time of singleness to develop your walk with God, undistracted. I believe God will honor you and bring someone special into your life. Mark the prophet. Six months later, here comes Ken. Ken. A year after that, Mark the prophet got to play Pastor Mark and perform the wedding. I love it when God does that. This was God's sovereign work. Phyllis said, I'm going to commit myself to full, wholehearted devotion to God and ministry and let God do this thing. He said, go out and try to make it happen myself. Now, we have all the tools today. We've got all the online apps to go find somebody. You know what? Don't rely on the apps. Rely on God. Let me just say, okay. Ken and Phyllis now have been married, happily married, for over 20 years. They have four kids. Two of them are in college. Ken's a detective uh, with the Tacoma Police Department. Now, for Phyllis, she did not have the gift of celibacy, but took her single time and devoted it unreservedly to God. And God took care of that. Paul also says, if you don't have the gift of singleness, get married. Okay, get married. Sometimes easier said than done, but if you don't, then get married. Letter D says, marry if you burn, verse 9. In verse 9, it says, if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Remember, these Christ Corinthians live surrounded by constant reminders of, of sex and sexual temptation, much like today. You can't open a magazine, turn on a TV, listen to radio. You can't go online, listen to colleagues at work, listen to fellow students at school with, without being reminded of sex and tempted by sex. And Paul says it's better to marry than to fall into a lifestyle of sin, to satisfy the passions within you, the pressures of passions. This is not to demean marriage and to say it's just something to keep us from temptation. OK? 
Okay? Paul says it's better to get married than be inflamed to sexual desires, which is hard to control outside of marriage. Marry rather than be consumed by the passions of sin. This isn't an excuse for lack of self-control, and certainly not an excuse to treat one's spouse as a sex object. Many people think that if they marry, they'll be able to exercise every passion and never need self-control again. That's, that's not true. Nothing's further from the truth. There are times that even married, you'll be apart, unable to experience intimacy for other types of reasons. And there is ample reason. Self-control has to be exercised always. But if single, if one cannot control, it's better to marry. Now, does this mean Paul is demeaning marriage? That marriage is a concession to the physical appetites of men and women? Well, there are a lot, a lot better things to be said about marriage than it is not a sin. That's <laughs> not what he means. Singleness was obviously Paul's personal preference because he had the gift of celibacy. But he never says that marriage is morally inferior or celibacy is morally superior. He merely affirms singleness, something our society and culture really fails to do today. He affirms singleness. He regards marriage as the norm, but recognizes that there are some to whom God has given a special gift who should remain unmarried. That's where it is. So singleness. Now let's look at marriage. Let's look at marriage, Roman number two. What does the Bible say about marriage? Singleness is good. Letter A, marriage is good. Oh, good, I'm glad we got to that. Marriage is good. In the historical account of creation, God made a statement after each phase. Every part of the, every day he created something different. And after the end of it, it says, and God looked at it and he said, it is good. Okay. Every part of creation. Then when he created man, he said, it is not good. What did he say? It was not, he said, it is not good that man should be alone. Okay. He recognized that, and he created man at, for companionship in women. So he created women. He says, I will make a helper suitable for him. And helper, it conveys someone who helps assist one reach complete fulfillment. There's a complementarity with, with that. So he created women. So God created marriage, and he created marriage good. Proverbs says a, a, good, a good wife is a gift from God. So we find that singleness is good. God affirms that. And also that marriage is good. Okay, marriage is good. That's what he says. Then we get to letter B. He says, sex is good. Sex is good. Now, Paul had to affirm sexual intimacy as well because some couples in the Corinthian church were abstaining for religious reasons. Okay? Now, that doesn't happen today very often. There may be other reasons, but abstaining for religious reasons. Sex had been part of their pagan religious practices, and they carried this attitude with them. They did not realize that sex was good because it had been so perverted, so perverted, because it was outside the context of which God created it, and it became evil and destructive. And with all the craziness of that today in our culture, all the mixed messages, we have this distorted view of that. And some were denying their spouse in verse 5. And Paul says, stop denying one another. Stop denying one another. See, in Genesis 1 says, then God blessed Noah and his son, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. God created marriage and God created sex. It's divinely created. Gordon Fee writes this, and I quote, Paul recognizes this divinely created and ordained context 
for human intimacy and the expression of the sexual drive. Sex in marriage is not to be rejected. Setting it aside should only be by mutual decision for a limited period of time, not because it is of no value or hurtful. God-given sexuality is a strong force. If it is not given its proper context for expression, it is in danger of spilling over into sexual immorality. The strongest of all human desires. Now, the sexual drive is one of the strongest drives in men. In fact, it's listed as the number one reason most men get married. Okay? Studies have shown that. Dr. Harley lists sexual fulfillment as the number one need of most men. Women need affection. There's a difference, okay? Women need affection. Most women include sexual intimacy as a reason for marriage, but higher on their need is the need for affection. Sex apart from affection is unthinkable. Now, that's another sermon, okay? But the context is that there is unconditional love. The husband is to lead his wife, live with his wife in an understanding way, and honor your wife. But just as sex without affection is unthinkable for, for women, marriage without sex is unthinkable for men. Some have taken 1 Corinthians 7 and misused it. That's why I wanted to give us full context. So let's look at some guidelines to help us understand. Some guidelines. This is not exhaustive, but hopefully we can, uh, we can gain some understanding. God made us sexual beings, but with every other, like with other, every other driver appetite, he gives guidelines. And it's important that we understand these guidelines. Let us see the guidelines. Number one, marriage. Marriage. Outside of the marriage, there is no place for sexual expression. Outside of marriage, it causes pain and destruction. God created human beings, and he said the context for that intimacy is marriage. There, there's no other place. It causes pain, destruction, all kinds of brokenness if it's utilized outside of marriage. So the context is in marriage, period. Number two, monogamy. Monogamy. One man, one woman. Okay? And we see in the, uh, in the Old Testament when there was polygamy and all these other things, uh, it caused all kinds of problems. That was not part of God's original design. His original design was one man, one woman for life. Okay? Verse 2. Verse 2, he says, But since there is so much immorality, let each man have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. Immorality was rampant in Corinth. It was the accepted norm, just like the USA. And there were obviously those in the church who were practicing immorality. And it would be unusual indeed if there are not some here in this church that are also practicing immorality. Men and women. Paul writes, because of immorality, each man should have his own wife, each woman her own husband. Have means to be married to or be in continuing relations with. Marriage is to be one man, one woman for life, monogamy. That is the only place for sexual intimacy. We see a lot of issues that come up when people live together without, and sleep together without being married. Experiencing intimacy without commitment, I talked about this last week. There's always this back door, there's this way out. In other words, we're, we're living together, we're pretending, but, uh, but we're gonna just kind of keep, keep our options open. And many carry that same, that same attitude when they go into marriage and say, well, we're gonna try it and see. If it doesn't work, there's always this back door, I can always leave. 
Studies have shown that when a couple experiences sexual intimacy prior to marriage, something changes in their relationship. Once married, the husband feels guilt at having violated his wife before marriage, and this guilt works its way out in withdrawal and passivity. You end up with a passive husband. The wife feels hurt and anger, and it works its way out in aggressiveness, and the result is a reversal of roles. Where the husband is supposed to lead, he becomes passive. So you end up with a passive husband and an assertive wife. The wife ends up being the head of the house. The husband becomes a passive participant. Now, can God correct and heal that? Yes. It's important that, that people understand what has happened if that's where a family is at. That couples need to be aware, ask for forgiveness, and submit to the biblical model of marriage and allow God to heal the relationship and heal the marriage. Because God has placed the man as the head and the woman as the helpmate. God has put there, and if we don't take the lead, we are... We are not fulfilling our obligation and our leadership role. Now, we can go into all kinds of things from Ephesians that talks about uh, love your wife as Christ loved the church. And, and I'll tell you something, when, when husbands love their wife as Jesus loves the church, there's no problem with submission. But that's all part of that. So monogamy. The third principle is mutuality. Mutuality. Verses 3 and 4 says the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Paul affirms intimacy in a marriage. Some couples were practicing a kind of celibacy. And supposedly, this was causing some men to go to prostitutes. And understanding the strong sex drive in men, the problems this created, Paul elevates the sexual relationship to one of mutuality. Traditionally, sex was the husband's privilege and the wife's obligations. Women were treated as objects. The emphasis by Paul is not you owe me, but I owe you. The sexual demands in marriage were the same for both husband and wife. It's an affirmation that the two belong to one another. In a, in a Christian marriage, we belong to the other. It's not I give my 50%, you give your 50%. It's we both give 100%. Paul says stop depriving each other. See, Christianity is a belief system based on love, unconditional love, based not on taking, but on giving. If I practice love, giving, not taking, I don't say, your body belongs to me, give it to me. Instead, I say, my body belongs to you, I give it to you. 1 Corinthians 13 says, love does not demand its own way. And if we reduce our partner to objects of our pleasure, as our culture obviously has, we are taking and not giving. The guideline calls for mutual giving of each other out of love. Give not taking. Is your marriage relationship one of giving or taking? Wives, if you understand your husband's sex drive is so strong, you will be willing to give. Husbands, if you realize your wife is too tired, you'll be willing to wait. When first married, the, the sex life is usually the most active. Of course, it's, it's new. And there's a big dip right after the birth of the first child. Why? She's exhausted. She's tired. Give her a break. Give her a break. Men, live with your wife in an understanding way and be sensitive. Be sensitive. 
Women realize the incredible drive and need in your husband. And it's from God. It's from God. You can blame him, I guess. Mutuality, giving, not taking. And Paul recognizes that Satan is always in the picture. He's always ready to motivate people to use good, normal processes to displease God. Men and women can be tempted by Satan because of a lack of self-control. And you can minimize or nearly eliminate that temptation for your husband and your wife. Paul writes, husband and wives are not to withhold these normal marital rights from each other except by mutual consent and agreement only for a specified purpose, specified period of time, then come together again lest Satan tempt one another. The only concession is mutual agreement for a short period of time. William Barclay writes very wisely, marriage is a partnership. It's a partnership. The husband cannot act independently of the wife, not the wife of the husband. They must always act together. The husband must never regard the wife simply as a means of self-gratification. The whole marriage relationship, both in its physical and spiritual sides, is something in which both are to find their gratification and highest satisfaction in all their desires. And most of all, all their deepest needs, single or married, really can only be met by God through Jesus Christ. Whew, got through that one. At least I'm, I think I'm done. Singleness is good. Marriage is good. Let's live as God has created and intended. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you don't shy away from issues. And I thank you, Lord, that you can give us guidelines in these. I thank you that Paul was very upfront. And I pray, God, that you would bring for us, bring us into health as we desire and we need your help. We need your help because we don't have that kind of selfless love that it requires to be a healthy giver in marriage. And I just pray, God, that you would raise this up. Help this be a corrective of our misconceptions and misunderstandings of singleness and marriage. And pray, God, that you would give us righteous lives and, and live in righteousness for your glory. We thank you in Jesus' name. Let's stand, shall we? Your
If you have a prayer need, we'll have a team over here 
at the end of the service to pray for you if you have any prayer requests. Um, you can also fill out the uh, Connect card and uh, put those in the offering box as well. We pray for those every week as a staff. So, so um, the next part of chapter seven is uh, is a um, is about marriage, remarriage, and divorce. We're not going to cover that quite yet. There's a there's some things I'm trying. There's so much in there that I'm I'm going to probably delay it till fall. But just just to let you know uh, that we'll be doing that next Sunday though, um, ten o'clock service together, everybody in a brunch together. So um, come and enjoy that time of fellowship, and uh, you can get to know people that you don't know from the other service. So uh, next Sunday at 10 o'clock, let's be dismissed with God's blessing. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Don't forget to stop by the Gideon table. You're way out.